As we look at the scripture this morning, I, I, I start to think about how we think about Jesus, uh, who he was, how we think about his identity. Uh, in the previous century, especially, there was a movement of New Testament scholars, some of them professing Christians, some of them, some of them not, who argued that in the early church what happened was the stories of Jesus became legendary. And as time went on, they started to deify Jesus and call him God. But originally, he made no claims to be God. Uh, originally, the early church would have just seen him as a, as a messianic figure to follow, but not specifically as the Son of God or the second person of the Trinity or anything like that. And that that happens later. In fact, Part of what they would say is like John's gospel, which seems to make the, the divinity of Jesus very clear, uh, was a later writing, and that's about the time John was writing his gospel would have been when a lot of these things were changing, and they started to think about Jesus differently. Um, this kind of argument is kind of immortalized in a book by the critical, skeptical New Testament scholar Bart Ehrman called How Jesus Became God, again, assuming that he wasn't before. And in fact, uh, several evangelicals wrote a response, I think it's called, How God Became Jesus, which I think is, an is a good quip on the title. But the point being that there, there's been this debate going on for a while. But it's interesting because if you look at the early church in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th centuries, as they were wrestling with the identity of Jesus, some of them, many of them, didn't struggle so much with the idea that he was God. They kind of took that for granted. In fact, what they struggled with, not all of them, but some, was how he could really, truly be fully human. And so they came up with some thoughts about how maybe he just appeared to be human, or maybe he was less human than others, and he was really, really just God appearing in a specific way. But of course, the Gospels speak differently about Jesus' humanity. They make very clear that Jesus is fully human. He was born of a woman. He ate, and he drank, he breathed, he slept. I mean, can you imagine God sleeping? Well, in the person of Jesus Christ, God slept. He, he cried. He had emotions. It says at different times, you know, he had compassion or, or different things like that. And he also suffered. And he also died. I mean, Jesus was fully human. And a part of, of Jesus being fully human, part of the reason that's so important, is if Jesus wasn't fully human, he couldn't redeem us, who are fully human. He couldn't go to the cross and redeem humanity there if he himself was not fully human. So lest you think the, that, that there's no real skin in the game on this argument, there very much is, both literally and figuratively, I guess. And so we look at this and we see that one important feature of Jesus being fully human is what we read at the beginning of our service from Hebrews, that he was tempted in every way like us, except without sin, without sinning. That's so important. Had he not been tempted in every way like we were, he couldn't have prevailed over temptation, over sin, over the evil one. And so it was important that he was tempted, but it was also very important that he did not sin. Had he sinned, the whole project would have been over. And so this morning, we need to see that it is important that Jesus be tempted like Adam, but without falling, that he be tempted like Israel without rebelling, and that he be tempted like us, but without sinning. 
And because Jesus was tempted without sinning, we, we can trust in his death and his resurrection to defeat sin and death itself. So let's begin here in this passage and address the, the first verse here. This verse introduces the whole of this story that we read this morning. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now this idea of the Spirit leading Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted might be kind of foreign to us, especially if you've been buying the gospel being preached here in the States by some, that the point of Christianity is to be happy, healthy, wealthy, and wealthy, and also wealthy. If you've been buying that gospel that has been preached so loudly in pulpits across our country, then it won't make any sense to you that God, the Spirit, would lead Jesus to a place where he might be tempted. You're going to really struggle in your life when you feel that you have hit a, a, a point where you have been tempted or where you are struggling, where you need help, where you feel like you are going through a wilderness. It's not going to make a whole lot of sense if you have no category for God allowing that to happen. If you think God doesn't desire that, what's going to happen next? Well, you must believe there isn't a God if that's what's happening. But here we have God leading by the Spirit Jesus into the wilderness. Why? To be tempted by the devil. And the second thing we ought to notice is the devil. Now, uh, whereas we normally say the devil is in the details, here the details are in the devil, I guess. And it's important to note this because we do live in a culture where I think even people who might admit that some kind of God exists, they have a hard time understanding this character, the devil. Uh, we were talking this morning uh, about this very fact. I found myself the other day uh, watching a YouTube video at home on World War II, which made me think, now that I'm a father, uh, I guess World War II is something I'm supposed to be studying, I'm supposed to be reading biographies on it. If you don't understand that, then I'll, I'll leave that be. But I know, I, I know the, the primary market for any biography or history book on World War II are middle-aged fathers. And so uh, I'm not yet middle-aged, but I guess I'm getting there. And so I'm starting to become interested in World War II, I guess. But if you look at World War II, this fundamentally changed, actually, a lot of the church. Um, one, there's, there's whole movements. Germany was a hotbed for New Testament studies in particular, but also some theological studies. And leading into uh, the rise of the Nazi empire, there were some who acquiesced to the Nazis, allowed them to take power, allowed them to take control, even supported them. And then there was a small group of the confessing church, which opposed them. I've mentioned Dietrich Bonhoeffer before. He was one of those. Another famous theologian who was a part of that was a figure named Karl Barth. But the point is that there, there was a lot of tension around that. Now, after World War II, the great death and suffering and turmoil that that war brought, especially when you see uh, the various events that happened during that war, a uh, premier among all of them probably being the Holocaust, right? In the face of all that evil... The, the liberal theologian's idea that humans were basically good and that Jesus was just a wise man that we were supposed to be following, even if they believed some of the main parts of Christian belief, they still kind of held on to those ideas. They, they doubted the devil and things like that. After this war, they could no longer look at the world and say people are basically good and that there is no such thing as true and utter evil. In fact, they were so concerned at the extent of the evil, they could no longer 
just simply say that the bad things in this world are simply a cause of human beings, although I think they admitted that many of them were, but that there must have been something devilish about all that happened. And that great evil has kind of changed the conversation in New Testament studies and theology and things like that. And so we see this figure, the devil. And Jesus goes into the wilderness, and he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, recalling perhaps the 40 days and 40 nights that Moses spent on the mountain, receiving the law from God, the Ten Commandments, as we call them. Or maybe recalling the entire wilderness wanderings of Israel when they were in the wilderness for 40 years. And so he goes out, and it says he was fasting. And so, makes sense, the next thing it says is, he was hungry. Now, I don't know if you fasted, but... It's a very logical conclusion from fasting to hungry. And so it says he was hungry. And the devil comes to him and says, and tempts him, saying, if you are the son of God. Now, I want to just pause there for a moment. Now, it's been a couple weeks since we last were together. Last week, with all the snow and the ice, we weren't here together. But the week before that, we looked at chapter 3. And we saw the baptism of Jesus. And in that story, Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River. And we see the fullness of the Trinity as Jesus is pulled up from the water. The Spirit descends like a dove and upon him and rests on him. And a voice cries from heaven, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus, in his baptism, has the full confidence from God that he is the Son of God. And yet, as soon as he is tempted, what does the devil try to do? Get him to doubt the identity that God has declared upon him. He says, if you are the Son of God. And this this strategy of the devil to cause us to question the Word of God is a very, very common thing that he does. We see this all the way back if we go to our first few pages in our Bible in the story of Adam and Eve. We see the serpent tempting. And he says, did God really say that you can't eat from the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? Now, if you remember, God didn't say that, did he? He said you aren't supposed to eat the fruit of this one tree. Of course, that then leads Eve not to correct him truly, but to correct him wrongly. And she says, no, 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 we can, we can eat from any of the trees except for this one, and we can't touch it, or we will die. So she gets it wrong, because this doubt has been put in her head about God's word. And so the devil comes to Jesus as he comes, I think, to all of us, and tries to cause us to question the word of God. Try to get us to question what God says, as if what God says might not be true, might not be completely fair or without error. And so he says, if you are the son of God, he tries to get Jesus to doubt his identity that he has had declared to him in his baptism. And as we spoke last week, when we are baptized, we are baptized following Jesus. So in the same way, in in some sense, that God says, this is my beloved son, there's a sense in which God says of us, because we are baptized into Christ, he says of us, You are my beloved son or daughter, with whom I am well pleased. Not because you're great, but because Jesus is. Not because you're sinless, but because Jesus is. And so isn't it common, in your own experience, being tempted, in whatever ways, maybe you're tempted with a particular sin, or particular habit, or whatever it may be, 
isn't it very often that you begin to question in those instances, am I really saved? Am I really converted? Am I really a part of God's kingdom? Or am I just some failure who, who didn't really make you know, a right profession? Or didn't really get baptized the way I was supposed to? And so we question the identity that God has declared upon us when we are tempted. So the devil has us question God's word, as he does with Jesus here. He also twists God's word. And before we look at the particular, the three temptations that he gives, I think this is important. Uh, following the second and the third temptation, the devil actually quotes scripture to Jesus. And, and this is interesting, because when he failed to get Jesus to deny God's word, to disbelieve it, he then comes to him with God's word, trying to compel him to believe it, but wrongly. I'd encourage you, if you have time at some point, to go back and look at the verses the devil quotes, and then go read them in your Old Testament and see how right he might be. I think you'll find that he's very much doing what we call taking verses out of context. Um, I think I've said this before, a, a, a text, or a verse, a text without a context is a pretext to do whatever you want. I've also heard that a text without a context is just a con. Uh, but either way, the point is that the devil comes and twists God's words. You need to be very careful. I think we all need to be very careful. There are many silver-tongued people who come to us quoting Scripture, pointing to the Bible, and doing it in such a way where what they're saying is absolutely untrue. And if our naive thought is, wow, they must really care about God's word, therefore they must really care about God, we need to be much more careful about how we approach God's word. This is part of the reason, you know, one of the things I encourage people is, I don't care if you're in our church, we just want you in a Bible-believing, gospel-teaching church. But we also need to be careful as we encourage people to go to Bible-believing, gospel-teaching churches, that they believe the Bible rightly. It's very easy to believe the Bible wrongly. In fact, I said, we talked about the early church. In the early church, the great heretics, the ones who were, whose teaching was deemed heresy, uh, which, is, which is when you're teaching something that is so wrong as to be damning, these figures tended to be Bible believers. You might not believe it, but they would quote Scripture to defend their position. They just quoted Scripture, believed Scripture wrongly. But we have to be very careful just because a church says they're Bible-believing, just because a, a preacher is said to preach the Bible, we have to be very careful whether they're tr preaching the Bible truthfully. Now, that does not mean that every disagreement they have with our interpretation of the Bible means they're liberal, or means that they're really not a Christian, or that they're a deceiver. There, there are plenty of churches around here that are not Southern Baptist churches, aren't Baptist churches, aren't the kind of church we are, who I would say preach the Bible and believe the Bible. And they believe some interpretations differently than I do. But there are some, some that even go by the name Baptist, who the thing, or by the things that they say they believe from the Bible differently than us, I think they are going a bit too far. So we have to be very careful of that. And lest you think it's not that important, uh, if you've ever read the book The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, one I would encourage you to. It's in my top five books every Christian should read. Now I say that, and every now and then I've had people say, I really disliked that book. Um, I've even had people tell me they, they felt it was almost creepy. If you don't know The Screwtape Letters, 
It's, it's basically kind of a made-up story of an older demon writing to his nephew in order to help him in his training to be a good demon for Satan. And it's a fascinating book. I re- again, I really encourage you to read it. And, and it gives you insights into how maybe uh, there's spiritual warfare going on that we can't even see. But the reason I bring it up is at one point in the story, the person that this nephew demon is tempting becomes a Christian. And he says, oh no, you're in danger of losing him. But do you know what he tells him to do? He doesn't tell him to get him out of the church. He says, well, now that he's in the church, you need to twist how he's doing church so that truly we win him in the end. He, he, he says this quote, a moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all. And more amusing, which is the kind of humor you get in the screw tape letters. The point is, he says, oh, it's not a bad thing that he's in church. Being in church doesn't mean uh, that we won't win him in the end. We just need to teach him uh, that basically what he should be concerned about is being a good person, that he should be concerned. You know, he doesn't need to believe the scriptures entirely. He just needs to generally follow them. Basically, what you see in the screw tape letters is he's telling him, it doesn't matter that he is among Christians or in the church. Just get him to twist it a little bit. Just get him a little off kilter, and it'll have the same effect as if he weren't in the church at all. It'll have the same effect as if he was a militant atheist. And so here, the devil tempts Jesus by twisting God's word. So he makes him question God's word, and when that fails, he twists God's word. Now let's look at the specific temptations that are given to Jesus. And we won't, I don't think, just spend a ton of time belaboring each point, but we will see generally how Jesus conquers. It is so important that Jesus conquers sin and temptation on our behalf. So let's look at how he does that. Returning to verse 3, it says, The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. We're going to pause there. The first temptation you see is that he tells him to turn the stones into bread. So Jesus is out there fasting. It doesn't really clearly tell us why he is fasting, why he's doing this. It seems that Jesus is trying to live out the story of Israel, though. He's trying to demonstrate that he is the faithful Israelite. Where Israel has failed, they sinned in the wilderness for 40 years, he is going to succeed. He is not going to sin in the wilderness in those 40 days or 40 nights. And he will not sin after that either. And so, as the devil comes to him, he's tempting him with this cheap miracle. He's tempting him. If you do this small little thing, it'll give you a whole lot more confidence than getting dunked by John did. I mean, truly, you'll, you'll have a lot more confidence that you are who you say you are when you do this little miracle than when you heard the voice from heaven telling you that you are my beloved son. You'll have a lot more confidence if you just do this. And Jesus returns by answering him with scripture, referring to a passage from Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, Jesus is using God's word to combat the devil. 
One, I think this is one reason I encourage people to memorize Scripture. If you memorize Scripture, it doesn't just become something you read occasionally. It becomes something that's in your heart and your mind. And in those moments of temptation, it can be the thing that you use to fight against that temptation. But, not only that, but it's actually interesting that using Scripture, he cites a Scripture that says, Scripture is more important than the food. That man shall live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is the role of a prophet, coming and rightly interpreting the word of God, rightly proclaiming the word of God. And so Jesus conquers the devil as a prophet. When the devil comes and says, do this, he responds with the word of God, rightly, rightly used. And it's important that we know that Jesus is the prophet who rightly interprets Scripture for us. And in a day and age, which we've lived in for some time now, where some will proclaim to be prophets wrongly, it's important we know who the greatest prophet is. At the end of Deuteronomy, it talks about how Moses died. But it gives a hope that a prophet greater than Moses is coming. Who is that prophet? Jesus Christ. And so when we want to know how to interpret Scripture, we look to Jesus who interprets Scripture for us. And he doesn't do it just here. He does it throughout his ministry. And so we need to understand that we need to interpret Scripture as Christ would. We need to interpret Scripture through the lens of Christ. And in that way, we will see the conquering of the devil. Now, the second temptation is this. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now what's interesting is, when Jesus was hungry, the first thing the devil did was go to him in his weakness, and tempt him with the very thing he was weak in, his hunger. Tempt him with food. But now that that has failed, he doesn't go to the second weakest thing that Jesus is going through. He goes to the strongest. Jesus is strong in his faith on God's word. And so the devil comes to him where he is strong and takes him to the holy city, to the holy temple, and quotes to him the holy scripture. He wants to come to him in his strength. And this is something maybe you've experienced. When the devil comes to you to tempt you, it's very much in your weakness oftentimes. It's in those areas for which you are weak. But when you prevail, it is oftentimes that you are tempted then and where you are strong, which has a few benefits. One, you're probably not expecting that. You say, okay, well, I'm protecting my weaknesses, I'm putting up barriers, I'm putting up defenses, I'm getting accountability to help me prevail in my weaknesses, but here it comes along, and now I'm tempted in my strength. We don't necessarily expect that. It also has the benefit, again, on the part of the devil, not on our part. It has the benefit of striking us where we are most useful in that our strength oftentimes is where we're secure and maybe where other people see our security, where other people see God's work in our lives. It doesn't take too long to see fallen ministers before you understand that God often attacks us where, or the devil often attacks us where we are strongest. It also has this benefit, that where you are strong, you actually might be sinning. Because if you know you're strong in that, it may be a source of pride. 
And so the devil first goes to his weakness and then comes to his strength, his faith in the word of God, and he comes to him, takes him to the holy city, puts him on the holy temple, and quotes to him the holy scripture. Now again, I'd encourage you to go look at these scriptures and see how out of context they are. But we see Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So, so what Jesus does isn't say your interpretation is wrong, although I think that would have been appropriate perhaps. He doesn't say, well, the scripture is wrong or God is wrong for saying that. Instead, he gives him a passage of scripture that should control the interpretation of what the devil said. Because listen, if you go and read those scriptures, they are in your Bible. The devil didn't quote scripture wrongly. But Jesus says, oh, but you need to hear this from scripture you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. If you are not to test God, then your way of interpreting that scripture is inappropriate. If you are not to test God, your way of interpreting it is wrong. And so Jesus going to the temple conquers the devil as our priest, as our great high priest, making us think of the sacrifice that he will make on the cross, making us think of how he now sits at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. And so Jesus is conquering the devil as a prophet, rightly interpreting scripture, as a priest, going to the very temple. And we also see that he conquers his king. Let's continue in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And pause there and note, this temptation is on the one hand extremely surprising that it would be a temptation, and on the other, extreme, it makes a whole lot of sense. Part of the reason it's hard to understand how this tempts Jesus at all is because we know that Jesus ought to know at this point that he is to become the king of the world and he will not need to worship Satan to do it. And so it's very odd that Satan comes to him and says, well, if you worship me, I'll give you all of that right now. Now, this temptation is a lot more difficult than you think. I mean, it doesn't take long before perhaps you think of the kings of Israel and how quickly, how quickly they worshiped false gods. Why? So for political ends, so they could gain good treaties or more land, or so they could have peace with other nations. We see that with even the great kings like Solomon. But not only that, but Jesus' very work, his very work is to reconcile the world such that they do, that, they, that the world comes under his rule and that they worship him. That is his very task. And here Satan is coming and making it easier to accomplish that task. Hey, this way, the devil says, there is no suffering. There is no scourging. There is no betrayal of your followers. There is no period of time where you're doing your ministry and they're plotting against you. There's no time where you're betrayed by Judas. There's no time where your family thinks you're crazy. And there's no time that you hang on a cross and die. Instead, all you have to do is worship me. Simple as that. And I'll give you everything that you came for. Now, if you don't think that's tempting, 
then you just clearly have not been in that position. Really, what is this temptation? It's a temptation to worship our work for God over God himself. It's a temptation for Jesus to prioritize his mission for God over God himself. Instead of Instead of worshiping the one true living God, of which he is the second person, he is tempted to worship someone or something else. He'll still accomplish his mission, but it will amount to nothing. Because the most important thing, that the one true living God is the only object of worship, will have failed. So Jesus' response is perfect. He tells him, be gone, Satan. And then he quotes scripture to him once again. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus knows, no, there's no other way. I have to worship God, and I will go about his way. I will not worship you, Satan. You ought to just get out of here. Jesus was tempted in his weakness, he was tempted in his strength, and he was tempted in his very work for God. And we've already said, we know what it's like, I think, I hope, that you understand what it's like to have been tempted in your weakness. Many of us, I think, probably know what it was like to be tempted in our strength. And if you have not felt the temptation to worship your work for God over God himself, then you probably should start working for God. Because that is a great temptation to prioritize the work you do. This is part of the reason that ministers struggle so much. Because it doesn't become the, the, the very thing that they, they, the very one that they love and worship and want to live for becomes the one they get their living from. They get their living for worshiping him, it almost seems. And so ministers, especially, are very tempted. Elders, deacons are very tempted to make their work the thing they worship over God. Unless you think it's only those folk, it's also Sunday school teachers. Kids, volunteers, bus drivers, whatever it may be that you do for the Lord might be the very thing that draws you away from him. We have to be very careful that we are not loving the things of God over God himself. But Jesus does not fail that test. Unlike the past kings of Israel, he conquers the devil. And he conquers the devil in all three of these instances. And what does it end with? Verse 11, then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, what was the point of all this? I've already told you, I think part of the point was Jesus needed to be tempted in every way like us, without sinning, so that we would have a great high priest who sympathized in our weakness, and in our strength, and in our work. I want you to hear this quote from C.S. Lewis. I think he gets it pretty right. He's talking about temptation, and he says this, No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. 
They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. Very well then, the main thing we learn from a serious attempt to practice the Christian virtues is that we fail. If there was any idea that God had set us a sort of exam and that we might get good marks by deserving them, that has to be wiped out. If there was any idea of a sort of bargain, any idea that we could perform our side of the contract and thus put God in our debt so that it was up to him in mere justice to perform his side, that has to be wiped out. We can preach the temptation of Jesus as an instruction manual for our own temptation, but you know what? That will not do us a whole lot of good. If we don't remember the most important thing about the story of Jesus is that he did not sin and that in trusting him, we prevail. We do not conquer temptation by white-knuckling our whole life through every temptation. Oh, we pray for the Lord to keep us from temptation. We pray that we would not, that it would not prevail against us and we would not sin. But in praying, we recognize the fundamental thing that matters which is that Jesus conquered through temptation, and that through Jesus, we conquer too. And so the most important things for us is that we need to trust Jesus because he is a sinless Savior. Where you cannot, you cannot be sinless, Jesus was. And so in him, there is forgiveness. In him, on the cross, there is a defeat of sin, and through his resurrection, a defeat of the consequence of sin, death itself. You don't get that by being a good person. As C.S. Lewis said, that has to be wiped away. The idea that we could pass an exam that God was giving has to be wiped away. The reality is the only one who's gotten straight marks is Jesus Christ, and we must trust in him. We also need to trust the Spirit, because he empowers us with the ability to fight temptation. It is far more important for you to fight temptation that you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you than that you are a basically good person, than that you grew up in a nice household with two moral parents. It's far more important for you that the Spirit dwells in you in those moments of temptation than that you grew up in the South where everybody gets along, which is kind of a silly idea if you think about it, but doesn't matter. It's far more important that the spirit that led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted dwells in you to empower you to face temptation than it is for you to read every book on the shelves about ethics, every book on the shelf about how to live a good life. It's far more important to have the spirit that inspired the words of God working on your behalf and finally, we need to trust God's word and our baptism instead of searching for assurance elsewhere. That is a big part of what's at root in the temptation of Jesus. That he is being tempted to, to, to disbelieve God's word, to believe a misunderstanding of God's word, to hear God's word quoted and just go with it, and to question his identity given to him at baptism. Not that he became the son of God, 
But the assurance of his identity was given to him at baptism. In the same way that we do not become children of God through our baptism, but through our baptism we are declared children of God. And so, instead of looking for cheap miracles, instead of looking for these small things, instead of, instead of saying, I want to hear the voice of God, that will give me a lot of assurance. Instead of, oh, I hope I get this promotion, that will let me know that God is real. We ought to rely on the things that he gives us, his word and baptism. Let's pray.